ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Campbell Costello is a man whose work has taken him out of a cattle property in North Queensland all the way out to Kazakhstan and Mongolia and Nepal and Pakistan and South America. Campbell is not an explorer, nor is he an aid worker, a doctor without a border or a diplomat. Campbell is a vet, and it's the animals that lure him to these places. He's acted as the official vet for a sled race in Alaska and for the Mongolian Derby, an epic horse race that's described as 600 miles of beautiful hell across the vast Eurasian steppe. It's a hammering wild ride that Campbell participated in himself a while back. Since then, Campbell has returned to Australia. He's got himself a pilot's licence, trained a dog to act as his co-pilot, and now he treats ill and injured animals all over the top end. Hello, Campbell. G'day, boss. How are you? (laughs) All right, sir. Not bad at all. You've recently swapped your horse and your Land Rover for a plane. What made you decide to go out and get your pilot's licence? A variety of factors. Uh, I think sort of growing up uh, in the bush on a cattle station, uh, my father was a pilot. Both my grandfathers were pilots, so there was a you know a, a reasonable legacy in aviation in the bush. Uh, I, with COVID, you know the massive distances that we've had to travel, flights being cancelled, you know close contact rules and all that stuff. It sort of made sense after a while that uh, rather than me driving, you know, spending three or four days in a in a motor vehicle to get where I needed to, or spending incredible amounts of time on commercial flights and in airports to start flying myself. So does this mean you service the whole of the top end or that epic land across northern Australia? Uh, yeah, I'd like to think that I'd have one of the larger consult rooms uh, in the world. I've been lucky to service areas up the peninsula of Queensland, across Arnhem Land uh, and, and the top end of the Northern Territory, down through the Central Deserts area. And uh, I have worked in the Kimberley area of WA before COVID as well. How about Channel Country in Western Queensland? Do you fly over that a lot and see that a lot? Uh, Yeah, I was very lucky to fly over uh, the Channel Country and see the Diamantina in full flood uh, just near Batuta. God, that's so beautiful, isn't it? Oh, it's unbelievable. You know, I had some passengers with us and, you know, it was sort of late afternoon, beautiful cool air, nice cool blue sky day and... We dropped altitude a little bit just to sort of see that sun glistening, you know, off a, off a pseudo uh, Everglade, you'd almost call it. You know, black swans and, and pelicans everywhere. It's absolutely phenomenal, the desert and the channel country right now. And at altitude, the reds and the yellows and the blues, they just really stand out in that late afternoon and early morning. Yeah, it just gives you a different perspective. Sometimes when you're driving across these deserts or, or, you know, the Barclay Tablelands or northern Queensland, you know, it's hours and hours and hours till you see any sign of civilization, and it can make you feel sort of very small and insignificant in the bush. But when you get up in the air, you can almost sort of see the curvature of the earth and, and just the, the vastness of nothing. It's, it's beautiful, it's lonely, but it's really humbling. And I, I always feel like I'm at home when I'm there. Lonely apart from your co-pilot. Tell me about this co-pilot of yours. <laughs> so I've got a little uh, co-pilot that has uh, started poking around on my veterinary rounds. Uh, his name is Henry. Uh, Henry, I'm not really sure how old he is. I estimate oh, 14 months, maybe. <laughs> he's a lovely little dog that gets uh, chained up in the back seat on his little blanket. Yeah, he's a dog, uh, you know, the colloquial term we'd use as a camp dog. So he's from an Indigenous community 
the Fink community halfway between Alice Springs and Nadatta. So I was out there doing a veterinary contract, you know, spaying animals and, and doing the parasite treatments and disease surveillance. And this dog sort of ran up and said hello and bit me very lightly on the hand and led me down the road to his little collection of soiled blankets. And I was like, oh, this is, this is where I live. And, you know, we sort of had a moment and... Well, he claimed you, did he, rather than the other way around? He found me. Yeah, I was a man, I was an island. I I had no... (laughs) I wasn't letting anyone in. Um, You know, I would sort of walled off myself to be like, no, no, you don't let anything in... you know, you just keep on your own and, and, and keep striving forward. But, yeah, this this dog found me. <laughs> dog came out and said, get your coat, you're hooked. That was it. A hundred percent. He sort of said hello. Uh, some of the local human nurses were like, oh, my God. He's like, you know, he doesn't really connect with people at all. And he's just sort of run up and said hello. And they eventually said, look, with the tick sickness getting around here, our contracts are all finishing. No one really zones him. We'll, we'll ask around town. Um, and I found out that, yeah, no one made claims. So... Here I was uh, departing the Northern Territory with a dog in the back of the plane uh, back to Queensland. And how does he like being in the air? He absolutely loves it. So, like, he hears the prop kick over and he gets so excited. You know, if he hears the car or he hears the plane, I was recently doing a um, a locum, a veterinary locum for a clinic down in Dubbo in northern New South Wales a couple of months ago and uh, we had a plane parked there. And the Royal Flying Doctor base is there and you'd be driving towards the, the parking area for general aviation and all the Royal Flying Doctor planes would be kicking over their props and he would just start barking and getting so excited, just going, <laughs> I, I know what's happening. We're going for a fly. I just can't wait. He loves it. Can you stick his head out the window? Is that just not possible in a plane like yours? <laughs> no, no, not. It's, a, it's an enclosed habit. Right. Uh, that one. Uh, maybe one day if I can buy, buy myself a tiger moth, he'll get his little goggles and scarf and, uh, yeah, we can go around exploring. So which part of North Queensland did you grow up in, Campbell? Uh, so home for me, uh, I grew up in a cattle station just outside of Charters Towers. Beautiful area that I, I'd now call home again since I've just bought a, a little a little property near Townsville. Yeah, we had a cattle station just south of Charters Towers. Um, I was born in Townsville, but christened on the cattle property, did school the air on the station. Uh, I was the oldest of four children. And yeah, sort of, I never really thought much differently of it. Just a typical sort of bush kid upbringing uh, on a station before going away for, for boarding school. Isn't there an old Air Force base out there from World War Two? Yeah, there is. During the war, my grandfather gave some land to the Crown. There was two squadrons of Kitty Hawks there fighting the uh, Japanese during the Battle of the Coral Seas. So that is still an active air base. So I remember as a kid, we'd ride our ponies up there and, you know, a cyclone would be rolling into Townsville or Cairns and they'd go and park all the Blackhawks and Chinooks up there. We used to go and watch the old caribous and the Hercules do touch and goes. So, you know, sort of further feeding into that love of aviation as well. But um, yeah, they still do a lot of training up there today. So when you were growing up on this property outside of Charters Towers, when you look back as a kid, what kind of sense memories do you have living on that property in that part of the world? Oh, it's like you just, you'd wake up... uh, Early in the morning, if it was winter time, you know, there might be a, a frost, a real crisp, cold morning in an old Queensland homestead. You know, not all the floorboards would be totally uh, totally aligned. Um, you know, so you'd get always this cool draft and uh, you'd rug up in a million layers and run into the kitchen and, you know, mum would have been boiling some corn meat or cooking some breakfast for the stockman and my father, before a big day's work, if we had cattle in the yards, you know, that smell of livestock and dust very subtly hanging in the air, 
and the smell of, of uh, a wood fire burning from the donkey hot wars system out in the in the backyard. And then, yeah, we'd sort of either go out in the stock camp, bush camp and, and help out there or we'd, uh, we'd do our school of the air lessons. So mum was, you know, I don't know how she did it, to be fair, you know, raising four kids in the classroom at, at one stage, plus being a wife, uh, you know, cook, an active part of the stock camp and helping dad as much as they could. You describe it really vividly. I wonder if cities seem really antiseptic to you after growing up in such a vivid place like that. Uh, to a certain extent, you know, like I've been, you know, I've been very fortunate. I lived in Melbourne once. I've graced the streets of Hong Kong and Moscow many times and Buenos Aires. So, look, don't get me wrong, I love going to the city and, and expanding my horizons and my mind and food and culture and language. But I guess as I've got older, I've definitely found that I gravitate more towards that uh, that frontier and isolation. I, I feel more home at then. And, and I do think it's a big part of my identity and who I'm, uh, you know, growing up in the bush. As the eldest of your siblings, did that mean you had more responsibility? Were you in charge when your parents were away? You're exactly right. Yeah, I, I think that you do grow up a, a lot quicker, A, being on a station and B, you know, being the eldest. I remember oh, we were in we were in really bad drought in the early 90s and Dad was away with cattle on a gistman in central Queensland, you know, day or two drive. And we had no mobile phones back in those days, so he'd sort of disappear and we wouldn't hear him for, for long periods of time. Mum was left uh, behind to run 120,000 acres, uh, you know, running waters and 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 fences as best as she could. So yeah, you know, there was a there was an aspect of being the eldest, you know, keeping the household safe, looking out for the mailman, being sure that my siblings, you know, did their school the air lessons and did their school. Uh, my youngest sister, you know, she was seven years younger, you know, making sure that a nappy was changed and she was fed properly. Yeah, it was a it was a big time to to step up as a as a young person and to understand you know responsibility, and as well as that being a male you know sort of being alongside my mother, sort of taking on a, a pseudo um, matriarchal role at times, helping you know bottle feed the children and and feed them and and doing domestic tasks. So yeah, it was a really special place in in developing my personal growth at an early age. Is station life what made you want to become a vet? It predisposed that choice big time. Being around animals all the time, rather than having friends at school, like you had your siblings, but yeah, you had puppies and chickens and ponies and orphan little calves. Some of those had to end up on your plate at some point though, didn't they? Some of your, your mates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, so I think you sort of, I don't know, you were submerged into the, the circle of life <laughs> pretty young, so you sort of under, understood it, you know, like food and the, and the food chain, uh, being accountable, you know, like often we had to slaughter our own animals rather than just getting it from a shop. It's an interesting experience when you are part of that vertically integrated sort of paddock to plate thing. There's a different level of accountability there on a station. So once you graduated as a vet, it would have been perfectly natural for you to remain in country Queensland as a country vet or maybe worked as a, in a city vet or something like that. Instead, instead, you went out into the world to some of the more unusual and interesting places of the world. Yeah, uh, a big catalyst for that. I was very fortunate to sign up and be accepted to ride the world's longest horse race, the Mongol Derby. So, uh, oh, sorry, I've already made a, a, the Mongol Derby. Uh, as a, <laughs> Derby Derby. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can hear my, my British counterparts abroad going, you know, it's pronounced Derby, sir. Like, I graduated from Townsville, uh, I, you know, born raised, educated here. Uh, I, I, I went into state for a while. But yeah, that was sort of the, the first thing that really pushed me to go, you know, I remember being 
Oh, mid-twenties. There was 34 riders that started at the start of the race, and I was one of 16 that finished. So the attrition was over 50%. So, you know, to to do such an adventure, experience such an amazing thing, to finish it at a young age, you know, for confidence and personal growth, yeah, it really planted the seed, and I, I had a, a thirst for more adventure and exploring and sort of to grow my perspective and, and my thoughts and my brain. Yeah, like I said, it's described as 600 miles of beautiful hell. What's the course you go on in this Mongol derby slash derby when you get on, on the back of your, your pony out there? Well, it is structured to a certain extent. You are given a checkpoints you'd have to ride to. It's a it's a re- recreation of Chinggis Khan's old messaging route. So, What, the old postal system of the Mongols, the Mongol uh, Empire? Yeah, exactly, exactly right. You know, obviously asking a horse to, to quickly carry a message over a thousand kilometres is impossible, you know, that they'd break down from exhaustion. So what they used to do was place these these stations, you know, 30 kilometres apart and, and gallop the horse point to point. So every 30 kilometres, fresh horse, and you could cover a lot of country in a day to send messages and letters and postal stuff. Yeah, Mongols, Mongol warriors, horse warriors would take three horses for each warrior so they could alternate several times during the course of a day so they wouldn't exhaust their ponies. And is that what you do when you when you ride in the Mongol Derby? A hundred percent, yeah. So, well, not three horses at once, but at each checkpoint there is a new... You've got to vet your horse in, and uh, obviously it has to be sound, so no signs of lameness, no saddle rubs, uh, no wounds. Uh, the heart rate needs to be below a certain rate. That is very, very strict. It's something that uh, after being not only a rider but a veterinarian for it was several years, as you know, the welfare parameters are, are pretty strict. So once you've passed that, you get a new horse and you keep on riding. So yes, there is some kind of, you know, bricks and mortar as far as the route goes, but it is a bit ad hoc when you're like, well, do I go left of the mountain or right of the mountain? And those choices can either win you a race <laughs> or, or bring you, you know, great demise and challenge. And, uh, you know, weather, there's just so many things and so many variables that can really make or break it. Now, I've never been out to that part of the world, but I've seen a lot of footage of it. And what it reminds me of, the footage I've seen, is central Queensland in terms of its extreme flatness, the way the land seems to go on forever on the Eurasian steppe. And when, you, when, you, when you're in land like that, you see these, like these scudding clouds that just go on and on and on forever until they sort of meet the flat horizon. Is that what you saw out there? Did it, did it in, in some ways remind you of, of home? Yeah. I, I, um, it, it's funny you describe that. I, I sometimes see some great similarities there. You know, you've got the undulating step, as you call it. There's, not, there's no timber. Uh, little hills and mountains, not massive topography until we get into the northern parts. It gets some you know, some pretty big mountains there and, and forests. Um, but, yeah, it can remind you of central Queensland and that, that channel country. From what I've seen as a rider and as a vet, you know, the Australians do really well. You know, we're sort of synonymous and understand and respect that that isolation. Um, you know, we'll get a lot of seasoned horsemen and women that go out to Mongolia but they get on the horse and kick it on and they soon realise, you know, there's no fences, there's not a sand arena, you know, there's not a little day spa at the end of a good ride, uh, you know, that one must go and get a massage. Like it is, <laughs> you know, you will not bathe for several days. You will eat Mongolian food. You go to the bathroom in a trench toilet and yet you're left to your, your devices. And I found that, that, yeah, the Australians, especially the Bushies, they, they tend to do really well on this race. You know, it doesn't mess with their head like someone from, you know, Europe or the United States that may not have seen this kind of expansive sort of terrain before. Well, the, the, the classic Mongol horsemen 
also drank fermented mare's milk to keep them going, and horse blood <laughs> when their provisions ran low. I'm sure you must have had a good crack at those things too, Campbell. Uh, I haven't done the uh, the, uh, the blood pancake, right. um, but you're right. They used to yeah nick the um, jugular vein and um, get blood out of their horse to remain strong. Yeah, only if they absolutely had to. That was the thing. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah, but they drank fermented mare's milk all the time, which had a slight, slight alcoholic buzz to it. Did you ever crack at that as well? I have had many a crack <laughs> at uh, so they pronounce it their erag. Yeah. Uh, when I was in Kazakhstan, another place they call it kumus, but in in in, Mene, uh, in Mongolia it's erag. What's it like? Is it like sort of alcoholic yogurt or something? Is that that's what I'm imagining? <laughs> have I got that wrong? No, no, a hundred percent. You, it is. Right. It is alcoholic, and it's funny. Different provinces. You know, it's almost like wine, you know, the Mongolians go, oh, you can taste that it. it's different here and the pastures and the sweetness. There's one place, one family that I went to a couple of times and they're sort of infamous in the in the bush of Mongolia with their alcoholic mare's milk. They've got an old cow's rumen and they've tanned it and they sort of suspend it up like a massive sort of bladder hammock looking thing <laughs> and, and it gets this weird taste of the erag that only they can produce. But it's sort of like someone left milk out at, at at room temperature, yeah, um, and had it. it's very tarty, like it's, it's vinegarish, but yeah, it's a great diuretic. It will get you drunk. Do you get a taste for it, or is it just too, too alien to the taste of a country boy from Queensland? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's Moorish. Like I wouldn't go, <laughs> oh, you know, I haven't been in, I haven't been in Mongolia for a couple of years. I really can't wait. I'll, I'll drink it when I have the chance. I always tell right. the the newbies, don't get overzealous with your cultural immersion because I was like, your bathrooms are only slats over a pit if you're lucky. They call it their, their summer purge, their clean-out um, stuff as well. <laughs> so I always warn people that have never developed a yeah, gastrointestinal um, <laughs> tolerance for it to be very careful. But, um, yeah, look, you know, I might go ahead as the vet and be like, hey, you know, we need to get these horses on the line, yada, yada. And they're like, oh, you know, you're a big guy, rugby player looking fella, you know, we must drink horse milk to see if you're, you know, manly enough to do it. And you sort of slam down a couple of bowls of this stuff and sort of grit your teeth together to filter out a bit of the hair and the curd. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's, um, you're sort of you're like, holy shit, it's nine o'clock in the morning, I've got a bit of a buzz on. <laughs> And I'm about to practice veterinary science, and they're like giving your thumbs up, going, "Oh, this fella's great." Yep, no worries. You are worthy of our ponies now. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a funny one. And you were, sir, and you were indeed. That's impressive. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I am. I think that's tremendous. So, so once you've had your couple of bowls of herag and you've climbed on top of the pony and you're charging across this extraordinary horizon. What are you thinking? How does it feel? Is it great or does it get a bit old pretty quickly? Oh, it's just such a myriad of, of emotion, you know, like you can be euphoric and and, feel, and just like, wow, look at this, you know, skyline and and the countryside and, and just taking it all in. And and then five minutes later, you're bawling your eyes out because you're so exhausted and you're chafed and your knees are absolutely killing you. Um, are you serious? It does bring you to tears, your frustration? Oh, it is such a uh, undulating feeling of emotion, you know, and that's and that's why I enjoy it. You know, you strip everyone down. Like we've had Crown Princes of Qatar ride right down to, you know, your, you know, soul to the earth, working class people, and, and it just no one cares. It strips it all away and everyone's equal. You know, gravity still grabs us all at 9.8 newtons and, and slams us into the ground. It doesn't care about your breeding or where you're from. And I've seen, you know, special forces, big burly men reduced to tears, you know, just going, I'm so, I'm tired. I've had gastro. I'm so sore. 
and I miss my family and, you know, they're jubilant and like, oh, my God, I'm so happy to see you. This is the best cigarette I've ever smoked in my life and then just be reduced to tears. It's it's amazing to see, you know, and, and that's the game that you have to play. It's not for one day, two days. You know, you've given 10 days to have to battle the psychological warfare to keep on going. And, you know, I see it as a vet all the time, but, but as a rider, it's just something that, you know, you're like, oh, I want to give up. I don't want to ever look at another horse again. I, I think the best thing about it is a very grounding, you know, in Western culture, you're like, oh, I've got that meeting, oh, I've got that bill in a week, oh, I've got, you know, my buzz or, or my tax in a couple of months. In that moment, you're like, I just want to finish the next 35 kilometres and right. not get hurt. Yeah. Right. Business activity statement, furthest thing from your mind at that moment. So once you came towards the end of this 10-day experience, how were you feeling? What was that like? Oh, it was it was overwhelming, you know, to be like... I wasn't one of the casualties that had to pull out from serious uh, injury. Was it hard to finish the race? It was because it meant the end of some, like you were sort of gunning to get there to go like, I just want to finish this thing and give my knees and my ankles a break and my butt and have a shower. But you're like, this is, it's just such an extraordinary experience. You know, it means the end. All All good things must come to an end. So I remember I was riding with two gentlemen whom I've never met prior to the race, uh, Ben, a gentleman from the um, United Kingdom, and Will, an American, and we sat on top of this massive ridge amongst all the pine forests, this beautiful northern cool area. It, it could have been in Colorado, big eagles sort of circling over the top of us, and there's a little pile of, of rocks and a monument called Anovu, which the Mongolians, you know, you make a, you can make little sort of gifts to the gods at these places. And we're sitting there smoking a cigarette, and we could see the, the flags of the finish line five to six kilometres away. And, yeah, we sort of sat there for a while and just went, wow, th- this is it, gents. It's been an absolute pleasure riding with you. Sort of had a, a just laughing uncontrollably, going, oh, I remember that when we fell over in the in the river or, oh, I hit that rabbit hole and I got javelin and head first in the ground. How didn't I, you know, how did I not fracture one of my cervical vertebrae? I have no idea. And then kicked on and we formed a cavalry charge towards the end and some Mongolian herders sort of saw us and joined in and we charged towards the finish line. And it was, yeah, it's almost anticlimactic. I remember dismounting off this horse and just, just sitting there in silence. Yeah, all three of us just like, oh, my God, what, what do I process first? You know, the jubilation or the disappointment or the pain. <laughs> like there was just <laughs> so much going on. So you spent the next few years in Central Asia in places like Pakistan and Kazakhstan. What kind of work were you doing in that part of the world? So I was really lucky to be involved in uh, certain projects where Australian genetic material or livestock were going abroad. And the biggest thing was getting over there was to go like, okay, guys, you're in receipt of livestock or you're going to breed them. Hey, you've got to feed them, you've got to water them. Let's do some vaccination protocols. So yeah, it was really interesting being involved in, in building dairies from scratch, beef properties, finishing blocks, a lot of these postcodes and countries are subsistence farming and, you know, it's, it's um, you know, not throwing shade at them but just saying, hey, mate, like, you've, you've got to give animals water. It's, it's a warm day. It's like, oh, well, I, I had no idea. So it was weirdly rewarding work to sort of go, I was working with, and these weren't just stockmen, other vets, just to go, okay, let's talk about immunology, let's talk about nutrition, let's talk about disease prevention. And, yeah, that's what took me around the world on, on different projects. So you were in Pakistan when you got the call to fly out 
to help out in Kazakhstan. What do you remember <laughs> of that journey, getting out to Kazakhstan, this, this property in Kazakhstan? Uh, it was, we'd just finished talking to the Pakistanis about their dairy cows and gone and had a look at all these different farms and made a few suggestions here and there. I was in Lahore at the time, up in the north in the Punjab province, uh, feeling quite ill. I'd had a bit of uh, gastro and I get this text message out of the blue going, um, hey, mate, we hear you're in Pakistan. Any chance you'd be able to go to Kazakhstan? And I replied promptly, said, yeah, I'm, I'm departing out of here in the next 12 hours, 24 hours. Uh, if you can get a flight to Elmart in Kazakhstan, I can go and have a look at your cattle. Uh, so, yeah, they wanted me there for about 10 days, two weeks, um, yeah, to go and, and have a look at uh, some little Angus heifers that they were preparing for their, their first calving season ever. So you went on the well-worn route from Lahore to Almaty. <laughs> I flew airlines I'd never heard before and to airports yep. I'd never heard before either, yep. So you get into Kazakhstan, and what was the what was the land like when you got out there? Well, I landed, it was quite dark when I got into Almaty, so I'd gone from, you know, a quite, you know, clement temperature in Lahore to um, about 20 below in uh, in Almaty. It was proper proper winter at that time, and it was dark, so... The gentleman met me at the airport in a big black SUV. Yeah, it looked very XKGB uh, gangster. So, <laughs> um, and we sped out through the through the night, and there's snow falling everywhere. And uh, we get to this little farmhouse, and I rolled out a bit of a swag, made shift bed on the floor. So I didn't really know what the topography of the landscape looked like at all. And uh, next morning, I woke up and I look, I sort of pulled the blinds, and there's this beautiful valley. Uh, in front of us, full of full of snow, you know, could have been could have been a ski slope out of Wyoming or or, or Colorado. It was just absolutely amazing because we were right on the um, border with Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, and then where China meets both of those borders was sort of to the oh, to the east. Um, so it was a winter wonderland, and yeah, off to work we went. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. We were talking about you taking on a big job in Kazakhstan in a big property out there where you were kind of station manager and head vet combined out there. Tell me about the workforce in Kazakhstan. Had an interesting mix in in Kazakhstan. So if we go back, obviously, part of the Soviet Union and there was a lot of Russians uh, influence and and placement of Russian citizens there. So, yeah, we sort of had... um, yeah, a half sort of Russian-backed workforce and uh, Russian identity workforce and then local Kazakhs. So you had like Orthodox Russians and Muslim Kazakhs, essentially. 100%, yeah. So we had different languages, different skin colours, different religions. Yeah, it was uh, a lot of stuff to, to navigate. I don't mean to bang on about the demon drink, but did that mean that you'd have some workers who'd be a bit keener on the drink than others? Exactly, yeah, and... I remember once we we had some fencing to do and I'd sign this gentleman out to uh, go do some fencing with a quad bike and some pliers. It was probably 9 in the morning, 9.30, something like this. Anyway, I got a very angry uh, phone call or text message via the very basic Wi-Fi that we had on the station from the boss. I didn't know he was driving out, but he'd been driving out in his big flash car and said, why the hell is one of my quad bikes on its roof 
And the gentleman that's supposed to be in command of this, why is he sitting beside the road, you know, sinking <laughs> bottles of vodka with his mate? I was like, oh, I don't know what I can tell you. I only saw him an hour and a half ago <laughs> and it is still in the morning and this guy is just blind drunk. So mm-hmm. that was a big catalyst because obviously, you know, we had these two parcels of land unsupervised, out driving, you know, no fences. I needed the guys to perform and be sober. So I started hiring more the local Kazakhs. A, number one, they're more literate with horse riding and, and living a bit rough and out bush. They, they loved it. You know, they were in their home environment. Number two, they were more likely to be Muslim. And that being the case, they're less likely to drink. So yeah, I could send them out driving for weeks on end and know that there wouldn't be alcohol in the stock camp. And their driving traditions that they have, how different were they compared to the ones you were familiar with in, in Australia, these, these Kazakh drovers? Well, yeah, a lot of subsistence sort of farming there. So why did we go driving? Well, we had no fences and we had these big parcels land up in the Alps at, at altitude. We're about 300 metres above sea level. So we're sort of at the breaking point. Like I used to get altitude sickness when we'd be drafting and vaccinating cattle, get really sunburned. I'd get headaches and sort of, yeah, feel quite ill yeah, I remember the boys, you know, saying like, oh, keep the mob together and, and push the cattle like this. They they just weren't sort of, they'd sort of just let them go rogue and be like, oh, well, they'll all come together eventually. That was half the fun. Don't they use eagles out there to help them drove or falcons or something like that? They do. So, weirdly enough, between our farm and Almaty, there was a facility for eagle training. I remember driving into town to get some supplies and, and have a weekend off and... There's this van in front of us and all these fellas sitting in the back in the tray with all their eagles on their arms and a little hood. And I said to my trans, I was like, mate, what's going on here? He's like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to, I uh, forgot to tell you, that's just the eagle hunting facility and training school. I was like, excuse me, I probably would have liked to have known about this. So we did a handbrake turn and went in there to have a look around. And yeah, for, uh, there's a lot of wolves in Kazakhstan. And uh, the way that they protect their stock, uh, you know, rather than just rifles is, um, yeah, they ride around with an eagle on their arm and they deploy them to protect their cattle and sheep and goats from uh, wolves taking them. How do they do that? How, what, do the eagles attack the wolves? Oh, it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty amazing stuff, to be fair. Yeah, the boys would literally be sitting there on their horse with their arm out and this little eagle on there. Um, and they'd spot a spot a, uh, a wolf or, or, you know, a predator incoming. They'd take the little hood off their eagle and it'd just go up into the air, flap its wings and get to a bit of altitude, like a drone, really. And then they just fold their wings in and dive down on them like a javelin. It's, it's incredible to watch. And then they sort of, you know, get their talons into the back of these wolves and they can hit them with force and knock them over like the little foxes and stuff like this. And then they'll sort of, uh, you know, if there's a couple of, of eagles, they'll they'll sort of go in a group formation and they, they sort of get on the ground and peck and dig their talons in and they can, they can you wouldn't think a bird of prey could inflict so much damage, but they all, they'll either pin down the wolf or, or be able to inflict enough sort of encouragement to go, I think you should leave. It's, My God, what a spectacle that would be. It was, it was something else, yes. Did you ever wonder whether that could be that kind of, well, we just don't have that tradition in Australia, but using eagles to keep wild dogs at bay? <laughs> is that a silly idea or would that, did you ever think about I, that? I don't think it's something that we can uh, totally say no to. You know, we use uh, llamas, uh, marama dogs and, and alpacas and mm. other things to guard our livestock in, in Queensland and Australia. So 
think the eagle drovers per se, yeah, that was that was incredible to see, and definitely I was like, huh, there's a there's a way to extend my uh, horizons and think about something a lot differently, and and it worked indeed. And you know, train the eagles to do it, and then charge tickets to tourists to go and have oh, a look at it. Because yes, exactly, <laughs> such a tourism spectacular, oh, such a spectacle, yeah, <laughs> and so regal, you know, to see this gentleman. Sitting there in a, sort of a hybrid of Western culture jeans and some sort of Kazakh tunics, uh, yeah, just sitting upon his horse, totally relaxed, smoking a cigarette uh, with an eagle just sitting on his gloved arm. It's pretty cool. It's pretty gangster. I'm not going to lie. So those traditions that go back thousands of years are still being passed down to drivers? To a certain extent, yeah, definitely. Um, it was It was interesting comparing Mongolia and Kazakhstan. You know, I feel like Mongolia... You know, living in a yurt and the nomadic lifestyle and that kind of stuff after the, you know, the Soviet influence was was really, really strong. Kazakhstan, I think, was still trying to, and this is just rhetorical in my experience, but yeah, they were still trying to work out what they were going to do. Like, you know, for example, when not long after I left, they started their constitution and talking in parliament in Kazakh rather than speaking in Russian. But, but the eagle hunting was definitely something. Uh, that the Kazakhs were very proud of, and, and it was one of the traditions that had sort of shone through and was still getting used. What was local law enforcement like in <laughs> Kazakhstan, Campbell? Oh, non-existent. <laughs> uh, we had a beautiful, um, uh, not far from my homestead, there was this beautiful lake, lagoon, a couple of decades ago, a small landslide, and it had plugged up this valley, and beautiful, beautiful. So there was a lot of people that used to go up there, tourists, you know, Kazakh tourists for a day out in a barbecue, and I remember, yeah, there was um, there was this hell of a vehicle that used to just rip up these just rough, bad dirt roads. And it was an old Russian-made larder. It was sort of, if you imagine a, a mandarin when you peeled it and someone's thrown it on the ground and it's had about, you know, a week or two to slightly decay, that's what the body looked like in texture and in colour. <laughs> well, apparently, and he was the local copper, I found out. The, the stockmen were wetting themselves laughing, going, oh, yeah, that's the police car there. So what he'd done is he'd rolled it, and, you know, I don't know whether they were adding more to this yarn or not. That Yeah, the copper had been a little bit under the influence and rolled it. Uh, so he tipped it back on his wheels and he cut the roof off. So I remember this this sedan that uh, had no roof and you'd see about 12 people jammed into two bench seats in, a, in an off-colour Mandarin larder and then he'd park it and um, he had an Air Kazakhstan life raft from an airliner <laughs> and some bungee cords to put over it to keep the rain out. And I was like, Air Kazakhstan, if you do a quick Wikipedia of that airline, it is... It has been long extinct and had a very colourful uh, history of interesting aviation procedures, yes. <laughs> and somehow this guy had got one of the last remaining life rafts right. and used it as a makeshift roof. That's where the safety equipment ended up. Yeah, yeah, so, exactly. So the yeah. plane crashes into the sea, yep. you go for your life raft, well, where is it? Well, it's on, it's on a police car. Yeah, the coppers of... stole it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's doing oh, illegal charter drives out yeah. for tourists, yeah, so... Oh, it was just, it was a law upon its own. You just had to read a room and um, try not to be, you know, oh, well, I'm the Australian expat and I know you're sort of like, oh, I'm going to read a room here and play the game because if you heed people off, yeah, and they didn't like you, yeah, you're pretty vulnerable. So you just had to remember I'm a guest here and I have to sort of, you just got to let it run its course and some of the local laws per se. Those kind of stories are kind of like the stories I used to hear from my dad about what country life used to be like in Australia. We've been talking about the differences, but what about the affinities? Did you recognise some things in people living in outback, indeed, outback Kazakhstan, as they would perhaps live in outback Australia? 
100%, you know, like I remembered seeing those old, you know, Land Rovers and Land Cruisers have been dodgy together that would struggle to get a roadworthy certificate nowadays, totally being used in Kazakhstan or or in Australia 30, 40 years ago. So I think I always enjoyed it. You know, they're sort of larrikin yarns and like they're still developing countries where they're just like, we don't care. You can do what you like. And I think I've always had an affinity you know, with my father and my family and things that I remember when I was very, very young, very reminiscent of, of what it used to be. So you came back to Australia and just before COVID struck, you lost your dad in Queensland. What can you tell me about what happened there, Campbell? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a weird day. It was the 9th of the 9th, 2019. Our family cattle property is on uh, the Burdekin River, just outside of Charters Towers, and we have uh, land on both sides. You've got to cross the river to get to one of the blocks of land. And, uh, yeah, my mother and father had saddled up to go and do some some cattle work. 2019, if we recap, that was when that massive amounts of rainfall fell in western Queensland and, you know, drowned thousands of head of cattle out at Cloncurry, Julia Creek. And obviously, so a lot of the rivers were running higher than normal, not bad, massive currents, not dirty, just silted and, and higher water. So there's an area in the river that normally you'd walk across, you know, knee or hip deep in water, you know, with a couple of jerry cans of diesel on your shoulders to start a pump or put in a bulldozer. Anyway, my my mother and father uh, attempted to cross the river and um, it was much deeper than normal. And uh, yeah, the, the horse and my father got into trouble. The horse survived, but but my father drowned. And it was a it was a very sad day, very sudden experience to to go through. How about your mum? How was she going crossing that river? Uh, well, mum got into trouble, um, and uh, you know, obviously, I'm sort of just recounting from what my mother has, has told our family what happened that sad day. Um, she was riding a horse behind him, and and her horse sort of panicked as well. She fell in the water and was lucky enough to scramble onto some rocks and and sort of get herself to safety, but. Uh, Unfortunately, the accident unfolded in front of her and, um, yeah, she sort of was the last one to see Dad alive as he came up for one of his last breaths and made eye contact with her and she described his face as sort of going, well, I'm glad you're safe and, and this is it for me. And he went down into the water, his cowboy hat floated on the on the river for a while and, and then it sunk. It was almost sort of, you know, a cowboy Hollywood death. It was pretty traumatic for her family, especially my mother having to watch that. But thankfully, you know, I guess the, the weird silver lining of it was, well, mum knew where he was. Queensland Police Service were absolutely fantastic to deal with during the whole ordeal. And it meant that because mum knew where he was, uh, we were able to retrieve his body. So, you know, that would have been a real heartbreaker to be at the homestead and a saddled horse just turns up at the homestead wet or, or dry and, and having no idea where he was. I would have liked to have said goodbye one more time and you can't prepare for that. And and that's something that haunts me a bit, just to, just to have one more yarn with him and, and say goodbye, that gift that some people get when they know with chronic disease that it's coming. It was pretty quick. You know, we've got an old people's home in Charters Towers and uh, I've seen some great stockmen and some great people uh, go in there and, and it, just watching them, you know, lie and, and slowly, slowly march to, to their death is... Yeah, I think that I think that would have been worse, and I I wouldn't have liked seeing my father having to go through that. Once your dad dies, I suppose, then you have to figure out who's going to run this, who's going to run the station, what your mum's role is going to be, what your role is going to be, what the brothers and sisters are going to do. That's a pretty busy time. Do you get time to grieve in that messy chaos afterwards? In reflection, I don't think I did. 
reflecting back to earlier in our conversation, you know, being the eldest son, maybe my siblings would say, uh, say I'm out of line for saying it, but I definitely felt like I have to step up to the plate here and do my best to, you know, help everyone and and keep everyone safe. There was a lot going on, you know. I guess a lot of families in agriculture, succession planning is a, is a difficult narrative. Um, and if we look at the statistics, you know, it's about 26% that go through favourable, you know, succession. So three out of four can end quite badly. You know, you're trying to grieve, you're trying to run a business, you're trying to run a cattle farm, you know, you're trying to be a son, a brother, a vet. It was a really difficult time and I don't think I truly dealt for it for probably about two years. Yeah, it was really, really delayed. For me, uh, reflecting on it, it was like, I'm just going to make sure everyone's okay first and then I'll drop my guard and, and get a bit upset about this. So it's been a, yeah, it's been a long, drawn out, and, and, it, and it never stops. You know, I miss him every day. Um, and, 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 you know, the best way that I've heard grief summarised is, you know, grief is love that doesn't want to quit. And, uh, you know, the day I don't get sad is the day that I'm starting to forget and I, I don't really want that to happen. So not long after that, you, you moved into what is the next stage of the grieving process, which is to try and replicate the Mongol derby in Patagonia, in South America. Yeah, so uh, we, we did the inaugural, the Gaucho derby, a different model. You got a horse and a pack saddle. And on your pack saddle, you'd have all your sleeping gear, survival gear and food and sort of serpentipitously uh, navigating, you know, alongside the Andes through some pretty rough countries. So several months before Dad's accident, I'd been over there to do the recce, so uh, the reconnaissance mission, go and map it out, uh, that was spectacular to be with, you know, Argentine gauchos or cowboys camping out under the stars and no clients, no race to run just to enjoy the moment and sort of see how challenging it was going to be. Uh, Dad had his accident, and yeah, a couple of months later, I found myself back in Argentina, and uh, we, we were running the first race, and I was a mounted vet for that. So, yeah, it was an interesting thing uh, for the grief process because I know, like Dad, had often him and I had reflected on the Argentine cowboys and sort of they call them estancias. Well, they're very, very similar to cattle stations in Queensland and Northern Territory. It's just they speak Spanish, and it's a little bit cooler in the winter. You know, I, it snows. Uh, and in the summer, it snows as well. So it's an amazing thing to sort of go and partake in and sort of reconnect with my international friends, you know, big support network for myself. The people that worked in Mongolia and obviously were then working in Argentina at the time, sort of touch base. Um, returning to the horse and being, you know, out in the bush and riding around. I remember retracing my steps and, and explaining them to Dad and then obviously doing them again and, and him not being with us anymore. It was an interesting and a really emotional time. Like I remember a couple of times I'd, I'd see the big mountain there, Fitzroy, and I remember having photos of it and Dad being like, wow, that looks amazing and explaining it to it and then seeing it again and getting quite upset because, you know, I was like, oh, last time I looked at this I was able to explain and... And now he's gone, but that was an amazing experience and it was really healing for me and especially, you know, it was just before COVID, before, you know, there was sort of another jerk in the uh, in the timeline of life, you know, a global pandemic. So once it was up and running, did the inaugural Gaucho Derby go to plan, Campbell? Sort of. Um, so we all flew to South America and we heard about this disease called COVID and it was bubbling away in China and we're like, oh yeah, you know, whatever, it's just it's just something, it'll 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 be fine. 
I flew to Buenos Aires and then I, I got on a plane down to El Calafate and we went bush. We were, we were cut off. Uh, we had sat phones for external comms, but, you know, there was no news headlines or radio or, or internet to sort of keep abreast of what was going on. So you were right out of COVID world? We had no idea. That's kind of nice. It was amazing and it, it was surreal, you know, like... We had quite a nasty blizzard uh, halfway through the race and um, oh, I remember trying to recover riders. I went up with some local Argentine gauchos, cowboys. You know, we rode up into the mountains into this really nasty, rough, wet, snow, uh, snowed-in country to sort of retrieve some riders that were in, some ba- in a bad way. What state were they in when, when you got there? Well, we couldn't get to all of them. Some of them we found and they were just pinned down, like everything was wet, they were getting confused, the um, clouds had set in, so, you know, north, south, east, west, it was all just a overcast mess. You know, obviously they had GPSs and stuff, but the horses were trying to navigate through the bog, uh, the snow, they were cold, they were wet, they were running out of food. They were, it, was in a, it was in a nice way. I remember... I, I had uh, a few pockets of uh, satellite transmission to be able to get some coordinates on some riders near where we'd made a sort of retrieval base camp. And I walked on foot because I knew the horse wouldn't be able to get there and I walked on foot and breaking through the the wetness and these girls huddled under a tarp and I I called out to them. I was like, oi, it's Cozzy. I'm here to, you know, we're here to take you down the mountain. And these two girls just came out and just bawled their eyes out and I've never... I've never seen anyone so happy to see me before. They were just like, get us off this mountain. So we were able to get them out. But we had some really sick and compromised crew and riders on the other side of this big lake. We attempted to get across it, but we had like a 50-knot wind and it was creating little like tornadoes, mini corn- tornadoes, you know, a couple of feet high on the surface of the water. And I was like, we, we can't get, we're only about five kilometres from them, but if we cross this this lake, we're going to get cold. We're already running low on supplies. We are not going to, we're going to get stuck and become a burden. So, uh, but because the snowstorm had got more intense and the cloud cover, our satellite phones went off and our, our spot trackers, like we were having really big problems getting comms. Anyway, I was able to limp a, a message out to go, we're going to retreat. We're done here. We're going to become a um, a problem if we stay up here. You'll be rescuing the rescuers. So we retreated. Thankfully, I'd left my little GPS on and dropped a little trail because we got back to the forest and it was pitch black. We couldn't see any of the mountains, any of the moon, uh, any sort of ways to navigate out because the tree canopy was just so thick. I couldn't even see my horse's head in front of my face. I, I could barely see it. I remember just following, you know, little Hansel and Gretel trail of, of dots on this tiny little screen on a GPS about the size of a matchbox. And you can't even see the horse you're riding on as you're doing that. Like I could barely see its head. I could barely see the ground in front of us. Uh, the one thing, the, the soil was sort of chalky, so the contrast between the leaf litter and the, and the sort of cattle and livestock trail was about the only thing that I could barely make out. If I hadn't have put my GPS on going up, we would have had to camp out the night and I don't think it would have been very pleasant for us. Um, so we were able to get back. We got back to base camp at about 10, 30, 11 o'clock that night, just freezing, and we'd been ships in the night with the second rescue party. So they got up there, uh, big mob Argentinians and a couple of doctors, and they were able to get in there and, and, and sort of stabilise some people that were getting hypothermic. But, yeah, we, we got back down and um, everyone was just like, we sort of rode into camp. Because our, we, we had spot trackers that had ping out, you know, our location, they couldn't see us because the, the cloud had got so thick. So we sort of arrived 
as a surprise. And uh, everyone was like, oh, mate, we thought we'd lost her. We thought there was big problems, you know, like it was quite an emotional sort of reunion. Um, we'd started pinging our location a couple of kilometres out. So people sort of knew only last minute they were there. And I remember just having a feed and and standing near a fire and just being like just shaking so cold. Were you frostbitten? I didn't get frostbite. I got a bit of frost nip. I remember losing sensation in the ends of my fingers for a couple of weeks. I had to keep taking my gloves off to, to be able to touch the screen or the GPS. So, you know, I was lucky I had some really good kit, but it had just the conditions had gone so bad. Even the Argies were like, this is, this is nasty. Lack of prep, not really, just really, really forced to the limits. So thankfully, had that blizzard lasted another 24 hours, I think we would have been in big problems, but we were spared. The weather broke. We woke up the next morning and just snow everywhere, beautiful snow-capped mountains all around us. And they got everyone out. They got everyone out. And the helicopter was able to get in and lift some people out that were in big problems um, and stabilise them in a hospital. Uh, and, yeah, it was, it was it was absolutely fantastic. And did you press on with the race afterwards? We did. We restructured it. You know, obviously it was like, oh, God, we had to go and fetch all these people off the mountain. But, no, we, we cracked on and they was able to have a, have a finish and finish the rest of the race. And what was the last obstacle of the race? The last obstacle, so the soil there is quite loose. It's like a pot ash, little sort of shaly stone. So you can sink in and it's a bit, not slippery, but thankfully the horses over there, the Argentine Corriochos, or, or mixture in, in Spanish, uh, are quite sure-footed and big, big horses. I'm a big fan of them. I love it. But yeah, just some really rough terrain that you've got to go pretty, pretty steady. You can't just gallop this. And the final river, so we, uh, you know, we came over this massive mountain pass, quite a very exposed ridge, and then down to a, uh, a river. And, uh, yeah, we had to swim the river. And, um, yeah, that was that was confronting for me because, you know, it only been five, six months, and, and I sort of, I didn't really think about it. And we're like, because you're like, yes, cool, we're going to finish this bloody race, get it over and done with. Um, yeah, six months ago, my father was sort of attempting to cross a river on a horse, and I remember getting halfway through just going, oh, gosh, you know, like, I, I don't want this to go wrong. Yeah, it's pretty pretty emotional sort of thing to, to go through. Just think that something so simple is can, can just turn so badly. But, yeah, we finished. Uh, thankfully, I got across the river safely, and we got reunited with everyone, and everyone's gone guys, what are you doing? You better get home. That's that's when we found out about COVID. That's where we found out that the world was ending. So again, these days you're in a plane as a vet servicing the top end. Mm-hmm. What do you think you do this thing for? What do you love about the life? Is it for the animals or for the adventure? I think it's a mixture of both. You know, I don't really know what my destiny is um, on the cattle properties anymore is. So in lieu of, of that is being out in the bush is sort of, you know, it's a place, it's, it's good for my head and my soul. So I think that's a pretty big driver to why I'm there. I get to supply skills and veterinary attention to animals and, and, and people and livestock that they just, they just can't get. We've got sort of medical professionals permeating into those postcodes with the Royal Flying Doctor and federally funded, you know, medical drives. But the veterinary sector is really... I guess, sort of neglected. So, you know, unless you have a pilot's licence or the ability to drive massive distances to get out there, these places miss out. I I do enjoy the adventure, but I I just enjoy, you know, I think of people like my family and my community where, 
you know, we, we're not in a metropolis and just how much it means having, having a vet and how much of a difference you can make. I can make a lot more money, you know, working in the mines or, or you know, sitting behind a computer screen, but it's not rewarding work for me. Um, you know, to be able to use my neurons and my brain uh, is really important. But number two, um, I guess when you're a vet, you get to, it's life and death and you get to hopefully make a difference and that's really rewarding. Campbell, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. I don't know if we've ever had anyone on this program who's got, who's got a life story just quite like yours. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. I'm Bobby McCumber the host of a brand new podcast from ABC Radio Australia called Stories from the Pacific. The tradition of storytelling is such a huge part of life in the Pacific. Stories connect generations. Dad and I really had to learn how to be father and son. Bridge political differences. Sports can be like soft diplomacy. Record histories. It's a repetitive pattern of a man marrying and divorcing and then marrying again, divorcing. And create community. There was never a moment I felt like I didn't have the support system. Stories from the Pacific draws you deep into the lives of Pacific Islanders who have seen and done amazing things. You can find Stories from the Pacific every week on your favourite podcast app or the ABC Pacific website.